You know, there's some memories that you have as a kid that just really stick out. And I remember when I turned eight years old, my Aunt Carolyn and my Uncle Dave, uh, they came over. And they're probably my closest uh, relatives. My Aunt Carolyn's 12 years older uh, than my mom. And my grandparents are a lot older. So my aunt and uncle were more like my grandparents and they lived close uh, to us. So all birthdays and holidays uh, were with them and, and they came over and we had our birthday celebration. And my aunt and uncle gave me my birthday gift and I opened it up and there was all of this newspaper that had been cut up in, in small pieces. And there were dollar bills inside of this newspaper. So you had to, to go through and find these dollar bills. So, so I'm going through and I find one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. There was $8 in there. And me and my maturity, I looked up and I go, is that all? <laughs> and I can't remember if it was my mom or my dad was like, Eric, go to your room. You know, and it's like, I had to have a, have a talk. But in my economy, I was like, this, this is not a great gift. You know, this, this is eight bucks, right? You know, like, at least should have been $10, right? And that covetousness, just that, that longing for more inside of my heart, even as an eight-year-old. There's, there was an old interview with Donald Trump long before he was president, and they asked him, hey, when will you have enough money? You know what his response was? Just a little bit more. And that's really our heart. It's, it, you've got this amount of money, and well, how much more money do you need? It's like, maybe you save up $1,000. How do you feel when you save up $1,000? Well, it sure be nice to save $2,000. If you're fortunate enough to save $10,000, you're like, I think I need $15,000. And apart from God meeting our hearts, there's just this downward spiral of covetousness. It's really the false advertisement of covetousness. The Apostle Paul said that he had to learn to be content. It's not something that we are born with in our sinful nature. We're not going to be content. We had to learn to be content. And Paul says he had to learn to abound and also to abase. And isn't that interesting that we have to learn how to abound, how to be able to receive a blessing, be grateful for it, and not wish that it were more. To go, Lord, this was a time where you're really blessing me and I'm thankful for this blessing and I'm going to enjoy it and share it for your glory. Learning how to be able to abound, but then also how to suffer loss, how to be abased when, when the Lord gives and the Lord also takes away. And in this discussion of contentment, Paul then says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the context of Philippians 4.13 is contentment. It's the opposite of, of covetousness. There's this amazing challenge and promise when it comes to covetousness in Hebrews 13, 5. It says, let your lifestyle, your conduct, be without covetousness. God wouldn't want us going through our life with covetousness. Be content with the things you have. Or are, are you content with what the Lord has provided? But here's the heart of it. Because he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. When I'm covetous, I'm losing sight of Jesus. I'm losing sight of the bread of life, and he's the one who ultimately satisfies. So what is covetousness? Covetousness is longing for something that God hasn't provided. So, so God hasn't provided this. He hasn't given this to me, but I'm longing for it. I'm craving it. If you were to explain covetousness to 
a young child, it's if you don't get something, you almost become fussy over it. You know what I'm saying? That's when we know our heart has entered into the wrong place. I didn't get this, and I wanted it, and I'm in a bad mood over it. And it's interesting how Jesus addresses this danger of covetousness with this question in verse 13. It says, Then one from the crowd said to him, and if you look earlier in chapter 12, and Josh covered this, that the multitude was pressing into the point where they're trampling on one another in verse 1 of chapter 12. So, So just one from the crowd gets Jesus' attention, sends Christ a text, if you would, says, teacher, tell my brother to defy the inheritance with me. From an earthly perspective, this seems really important, doesn't it? Somebody in the family is doing this guy wrong and not giving him his portion of the inheritance. I've seen it in my own extended family uh, with my dad's brothers. He's got two brothers, no sisters. There was a a division over inheritance long, long ago. Don't know the the full uh, story of that. I've sure seen that as a pastor. You You would think that money wouldn't cause problems in families. But it sure does, doesn't it? The person passes away, and as soon as they pass away, our sinful nature will tend to try to fight over that money, to fight over that that resource. And here, this guy's not getting his portion of the inheritance, and he goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I need justice here. I need you to go and sort this out for me to make sure that I get my inheritance. And Christ's response is not what we would expect. But he said to him, man... Who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? I'm not really concerned about this inheritance. You're concerned about the inheritance, but I'm not concerned with the inheritance. Jesus sees to the heart of the issue with this guy, and it's covetousness. He's longing for something. It's not coming out of a place of contentment or a place of gratitude. It's coming out of this this place of, of covetousness. So Jesus, out of love for him, looks to him and said to them, take heed and beware of covetousness. Let's think about this for, for a moment. When God tells us to take heed, we want to pay attention. There's a warning that's being given to us by Christ. Guard your heart against covetousness. Beware of covetousness. Some translations translate this, beware of all covetousness. Don't allow covetousness to come into your heart. The last commandment of the Ten Commandments in Exodus is thou shalt not covet. You shalt not covet your neighbor's house, his wife, his servants, his ox, his donkey, or his forerunner, right? Why is it that blessings look better on other people? The scripture tells us to mourn with those who mourn and to rejoice with those who rejoice. And sometimes I think it's easier to grieve with those who grieve. When someone else gets blessed, it can be easy to go, well, why didn't I get that raise? I've been working just as hard as they have and nobody seemed to notice, but they got the the promotion. Why is it that they got the the promotion? Why is it that they got blessed on this good deal on on this vehicle? Doesn't the Lord see the the vehicle that, that I'm driving around? 
Why do they have such a great marriage? I'm struggling in my marriage. When in reality, they have their challenges too. But we see it and we go, man, I want that blessing in my life. You know, could they really afford that vacation? Or did they put it on a credit card? Instead of going, man, I'm just, I'm so excited for them. So blessed that they were able to go and have that vacation. But we begin to, to long for something that God hasn't provided for us. We lose sight of Jesus. We lose sight of the blessings that he's given to us. So there's the, this warning that, that's given to us. Take heed, beware of, of covetousness. Have, have a guard against covetousness. And then Jesus gives us a very valuable teaching. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of things that he possesses. You may want to write this down, but possessions don't equal life. Have you figured that out yet? Pastor Chuck Smith, he started the first Calvary Chapel in the, in the 60s. He would put it this way, what you strive to gain, you strive to maintain. Have you ever heard that before? I got to have this car. I've got to have this house. And God allows you to have that house and to have that, that car. And then what do you have to do now that you have attained it? You have to strive to, to maintain it. No one really tells you that about home ownership, do they? right? It's like, oh, I got to own a house. I got to own a house. I got to own a house. And then as soon as you own that house, you got to maintain that house. And stuff does break in, in the house. It's like, how in the world do all of these things break? And usually, it's not just one thing that breaks. It's usually in a trio of three. Three things break. Like you, you get a nice car, just wait for the first dent. And it's painful, isn't it? It's like, oh, the, the, this dent hurts. This scratch, it, it, really, it really hurts. So here I am striving for this possession and, and I long to have it. But Jesus says life doesn't consist with the abundance of what we possess. We see this lived out for us in life. There's some people that have so much financially, so many possessions, so many material things but they don't have Christ and they don't have life. And we see the emptiness of that. But then you can go visit with believers in Gulu, Uganda that live in a hut and they don't have a lot from a material worldly perspective, but they have Jesus and they have the abundance of life. Amen. This doesn't mean that wealth is bad. This doesn't mean that possessions are bad. We'll talk about it more in just a moment, that it's the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evil. There, there are people that are blessed with finances and material goods, but it's not their God. They wouldn't say, my house is my life, or my boat is my life, or my vacation is my life. They're like, Jesus is my life, and I happen to live here, and I love to be able to share what God has, has blessed me with. But there is this false advertisement that somehow this possession can provide life. But it can't. Only Jesus can provide life. So the things that we have, they don't provide life. I want to look at two other sections of scripture and then we'll come back uh, to Luke. Ahab in the Old Testament gives us an example of a covetous heart. If you'll turn with me to 1 Kings 21. 1 Kings 21. And 
we just see covetousness loud and clear in Ahab. He's not walking with the Lord. He's got a severe case of the give me's. This is 1 Kings 21. And it came to pass after these things that Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard which was in Jezreel next to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. So Ahab said to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is, it is near, next to my house. And for it, I will give you a vineyard better than it, or if it seems good to you, I will give you its worth in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give the inheritance of my fathers to you. What's unique for the Israelites is God divided out the land to specific tribes. He said, the tribe of Judah, you get this area of Israel. Tribe of Benjamin, you get this area of Israel. So for for Naboth to give away this vineyard is to give away the inheritance that the Lord had granted to his fathers. And he says, I'm not going to do it. So notice Ahab's response. So Ahab went into his house, sullen and displeased, Because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him, for he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would not eat no food. And wouldn't wouldn't eat no food. There we go. Reminds me of a toddler. I don't get what I want. I'm going to go pout in my room and and I'm not going to eat. Just all sad and sullen and depressed. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so sullen that you eat no food? He said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. Then Jezebel, his wife, said, You now exercise authority over Israel. Arise, eat food, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. This is going to be a huge abuse of power. Hey, you're the king. You can go get whatever you want, even if it means killing Naboth. And she wrote letters in Ahab's name, sealed them with a seal, and sent the letters to the elders and the nobles who were dwelling in the city with Naboth. She wrote in the letters saying, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth with high honor among the people and set two men, scoundrels, before him to bear witness against him saying, You have blasphemed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him that he may die. And as you continue to read, that's exactly what they do. They completely set up Naboth, invite him to this feast, falsely accuse him, have him stoned, and then... Jezebel gives the vineyard to Ahab and he's happy to receive it. That's an example of covetousness, isn't it? I got to have this. And Jezebel's like, well, I don't want my husband to be pouting and not eating. So I guess I'll just commit murder. I'll just murder an innocent man in order for him to receive this, this vineyard. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1, 1 Timothy chapter 6, we see... Paul addressing this issue of of covetousness as well. 1 Timothy 6, verse 6. 
Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. Amen? Great gain is not more stuff. Great gain is godliness with contentment. When you're walking with the Lord and you're focused on Jesus and you can enjoy what God has provided, then that's great gain. This is the challenging thing. If we can't be content where we're at, we're never going to be content where we will be in the future. So it's like, okay, Lord, whatever my current situation is, whatever the blessings are, whatever the difficulties are, I'm choosing to press into you for contentment. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and certain we will carry nothing out. I think that'll preach, don't you? It's like when you were born, you were naked. When you die and they take you to the funeral home, you can't take anything with you, right? The bank accounts, the possessions, the cars, the trucks, the golf clubs, not to mention the bikes. You, you just can't take any of it with you. You brought nothing into the world. You can take nothing out of the world. Having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. It doesn't even say a roof over your head. Like if you simply have clothes and you have food, then be content. Did you have food today? Do you have clothes? Okay. The Lord's provided what I need and I can be content in Christ. But those who desire, notice it's a motivation of the heart. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men into destruction and perdition. So the issue is not being rich, but the issue is this desire to be rich, this, this covetousness. I, I've got to have more. My life would just be better if I, if I had more money. It's, it's the desire that then leads us to temptation and then brings us into foolish and harmful lusts, bringing destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. That's quite a statement. So loving money then is the root to, to evil. It leads to other kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith and their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Do you see why Jesus would warn us about covetousness? Because he loves us and he wants to protect us from these hardships. Now let's look at verse 17 of the same chapter. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty. Whether we realize it or not, just by the fact that we're Americans, we're wealthy. You know, even as we struggle financially in America compared to the rest of the world, we're wealthy. So this is for us. We shouldn't be haughty, shouldn't be prideful, not to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. God doesn't want your trust to be in money. Do you have more peace when your bank account has a certain amount of money in it? That shouldn't be the case. Our peace should be in the Lord. Our trust should be in the Lord because what do we know about money? What do we know about riches? It's uncertain. It'll come and go very quickly. The stock market just goes up and down, doesn't it? Have you been following the prices of eggs? I mean, whoever thought we'd be paying so much for eggs? You know, the cheapest you can find an egg right now is about 46 cents an egg and goes up to 75 cents an egg. And that's not an organic egg. 
our governor has now passed a law that there can't be any caged chickens in Colorado. So now we have cage-free chickens, praise the Lord, and the price of eggs is even going up more. And there's a shortage of eggs. Now, if we put together our governor's policies, he's passed the most aggressive abortion bills in the country. And in Colorado, you can kill a baby right up until the moment of birth, late-term abortion. So he seems to care more about chickens than he does of unborn babies. Those are the laws that he has passed. So we can say with confidence, we need to be praying for Governor Polis because he's going to stand before the Lord. Do what you want with the chickens, but don't be passing these laws to kill unborn babies. And we see just the uncertainty of, of finances. You know, who knew that a virus would affect the economy so much, right? And things are just out of control. Riches are uncertain, but take a deep breath. Our trust is not in riches. I was reading in my quiet time in Exodus, and I was really encouraged by this this week, because you find Pharaoh turning on the children of Israel, and he's putting all of this pressure on them, persecuting them, and it says the more that they were afflicted, the more that they grew. And God has a way of doing that. When God's people are persecuted, the church tends to come alive. And God is able to be faithful and to be that, that faithful refuge. So there's a warning to say, hey, don't, don't put your trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God. That, that's a much better place for our trust to be is in the living God. And then I love how verse 17 ends. It says, who gives richly all things to enjoy. When you hear a message like this, you could maybe start feeling bad for the blessings that God has provided. But remember, covetousness is longing for what God hasn't provided, but contentment is enjoying what God has provided. So God is glorified when there's blessings in our lives and we enjoy those for his glory. Where we don't make it about ourselves, but we, we thank our Father and we go, Father, thank you so much for giving this to me. I'm humbled by it. And I'm drawn to you because you have provided. So if, if you own a home, you don't have to go home tonight and feel bad that you own a home. You go home tonight and you go, Lord, thank you for this home. Thank you for this furnace that is working. This belongs to you. And I want to glorify you. I want this home to be a blessing, to be used for, for your kingdom. It should be enjoyed. I think as believers, we should enjoy things even more than unbelievers because we know it comes from our Heavenly Father. Amen. You know, if you have a burger, have it to the glory of the Lord, right? If you have some good chicken, have it to the glory of the Lord. If you have a good salad, well, that's on you. No. <laughs> have, it, have it to the glory of the Lord. Like, enjoy it richly unto the Lord, right? And let them do good that they will be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. So the emphasis is not on money, but it's upon doing good. It's willing to share. And the result is storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold of eternal life. We're storing up treasures in heaven and our heart gets anchored in eternal life. So let's launch back to Luke and continue to see Jesus' conversation. Then he spoke a parable to them saying, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentiful. 
So this man's already rich, then he's blessed with a plentiful crop, and notice that he doesn't thank the Lord for this blessing. We want to be careful when the Lord blesses to thank him because he is the provider. He is the one who has, has given the harvest. And he thought within himself saying, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? Now, I think the emphasis and the attitude of this man's heart is my and I. How many times are we going to see him say, this is mine. I own this. I possess this. Instead of realizing this belongs to the Lord. A biblical perspective is we don't own anything. God's the owner of everything, and we simply steward it. Well, what what does that mean? It it belongs to him, and he has given us responsibilities similar to your home if you were going out of town for six months and you said, hey, could you take care of my house for me? It it doesn't belong to you. It it belongs to to someone else. It it doesn't belong to us, but his attitude is these are, are my crops, And what am I going to do with my crops? There's no thought of stewardship. There's no thought of sharing here. So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. Well, what else should he do with this bumper crop that he's received? He's like, I got to build bigger barns. So I'm going to pull down the barns that I have. I'm going to build bigger barns. And this emphasis of I, I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. This is the wrong message to your soul. (laughs) The psalmist also would speak to his soul. Bless the Lord, O my soul. I got to remind my soul to worship the Lord. And here his message to his soul is, well, I'll have many goods for many years, and then I'm going to have it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. And I want to go into this just a little bit deeper uh, tonight because it touches on two things, and it's the theology of work and the theology of retirement. And first, the theology of work is that work is a blessing, And it may be hard for us to understand this, but we're created in God's image, and God's a creator, and God works, and he gives us the ability to work. God also chose to rest, and we need to have an appropriate level of rest in our life. But God is glorified when we work. God gave work to Adam and Eve before the fall in the Garden of Eden. He's like, I want you guys to manage this garden. And we experience the fallen aspect of work. But do you know eternity is going to involve work as well? Without the curse, we're going to rule and reign with Christ. Imagine the projects that we're going to be able to do in heaven. My temper will not get the best of me while doing plumbing. Man, plumbing is just the worst, right? Just gets me going every time. Especially when it doesn't work. There's that moment of truth and you're like, you're, you're kidding me. It leaks again. Why is it, why is it leaking again? So when we get to heaven, we're going to experience work without the, the curse of sin. But the problem with this guy is he's saying, I'm going to store up all of my goods so that I don't have to work. Well, then let's talk a little bit about retirement. Now, 
there would be some that would tell you, you know, as a believer, it's wrong to save up money for retirement and those, those types of things. You just, just trust the Lord. Don't, don't save up any money for, for retirement. And I'd encourage you just to pray through that and think that through just a little bit more because you may get to a point where you physically are not able to work. So it's not necessarily like I'm, I'm saving up for retirement so that I can have all of these vacations, but I don't know if you've noticed these bodies do tend to wear out. And you may be fortunate enough to work until the day you go home to be with the Lord, but you may not be able to. You may get to a point where you get some type of disease and you're, you're not able to continue to work. For sure, we're all gonna get elderly, right? If the Lord tarries and allows us to live that long. You know, it's a little hard to find a job as a 90-year-old, isn't it, right? And so it may be wise to, to save and to say, I wanna be prepared if the Lord gives me long life. But that is a preparation for those, those older years. You might get to a place where you're able to afford to not work and retire and you still have good, good health, but I would encourage you then find something to volunteer in that is worthwhile that invests in the kingdom. Because this idea of, well, I'm just not going to do anything until I go home to be with the Lord, I don't see that anywhere in scripture. I don't see self-indulgent retirement in the scripture. What I do see is, man, you've been wise, God's provided, maybe you don't have to work anymore. So, so what is it that God would have you invest in? How would you invest maybe in your kids or your grandkids or, or the church or is there a ministry in town or, man, something that you enjoy doing and you're like, yeah, I enjoy fishing, but I'm going to bring somebody along with me and invest in the kingdom as we go, go fishing uh, together. So I think the problem with, with this guy is he's like, money equals the opportunity just to kick back and to take it easy. And maybe the worst thing for our soul spiritually is ease. Maybe the worst thing for us is just to have too much time on our hands. It's, it's healthy for us to, to have work. I think all of us, we feel good at the end of a hard day of work. You're like, man, Lord, thank you. There were some challenges there, but thank you that I had that, that opportunity. Well, now that that's clear as mud, let's go to verse 20. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? In this man's covetous state, he's very well at managing his finances, but not concerned with his soul, not concerned with where he's at spiritually, his relationship with Christ. And, and Jesus calls him foolish, addressing, hey, you haven't paid attention to the most important things. Here you're thinking you're going to have all of these years. You've built this big barn. You're going to enjoy all of these provisions. You're going to be able to take it easy. But then you died. You didn't plan on that. And where was your heart with the Lord when you, you passed away? And then who's going to take all these possessions when you die? Who's this going to be passed on to? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Again, it's this attitude of the heart the focus is on himself instead of upon the Lord. And then the rest of chapter 12 goes into not, don't worry. God takes care of the lilies of the field and God takes care of the sparrows. And that our focus should be in seeking first the kingdom of God and all of these things will be added unto you. 
And verse 34, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And Jesus gets to the core of it. Where we put our treasure is where our heart is going to be. Heart does follow treasure. Again, you may hear a message like this and get some wrong applications. The first is you feel guilty about enjoying God's blessing. Another wrong application of this is go, well, I don't have to be faithful with finances. Well, God doesn't want me to be covetous. That's going to be a lot easier if I just don't have any money. That's not true. You can be covetous whether you've got a lot of money or no money. It's a heart issue, right? As you look at the scriptures as a whole, we do need to manage finances because it all belongs to the Lord. If you're faithful a little, you'll be faithful with much. God wants us to show faithfulness in, in finances. So we can't just disengage from finances and managing it in a responsible way. But as we're engaging in managing it in a responsible way, we have to guard our heart. That our heart isn't covetous, that our heart is trusting in the Lord, and that we're willing to give, we're willing to share. It all, all belongs uh, to the Lord. And it seems, at least for me, it's easy to swing to one extreme or the other. It's easy with finances to just go, oh, well, God will take care of it. I really don't have to be responsible with it. Or, oh, I guess I should be responsible. And then all of a sudden, here I'm trying to be responsible and my heart is in the wrong place. But the balanced approach is, okay, Lord, this belongs to you. I'm going to be responsible. But Lord, guard my heart. Help my heart to not be in a place of, of covetousness. The Holy Spirit is good about ringing those bells of, of covetousness. And yes, it involves finances, but it doesn't just involve finances. You know, if you're looking at somebody else's life and going, man, I really wish I had their life. You know, you may be single and you're like, oh, I, I just long to be married. Some of you are married and you just long to be single, right? <laughs> to be in a place of like, okay, Lord, I'm, I'm single. I desire to be married, but I'm finding my contentment in you. Lord, I'm thankful for the spouse that you have provided. I'm going to stop focusing on their shortcomings. Stop being negative towards them and receive them as God's provision in my life and build them up in, in Christ. It's easy in our jobs to start going, man, why, why do they have that job? It, it seems so much easier. And here I am just slaving away in my job. We've got our eyes in the wrong place to put our eyes on, on the Lord. Deliverance out of covetousness is Jesus. It goes back to where we started, Hebrews chapter 13. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with the things you have, for he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Have you had those times in your relationship with the Lord where that fellowship with Jesus is so sweet that whether you're being blessed or abased, it's really secondary? Because it's like, I got Jesus. I got the bread of life. So Lord, you, you've blessed and I'm thankful for that blessing. But what I'm really thankful for is your forgiveness, that I'm your son, that I'm your daughter, that I'm your child, that I'm in relationship with you. And then other times where it's really difficult and there is a lack of finances and a lack of friendship and a lack of health. And it's like, man, these things are taken away from me, but I got Jesus. I got the bread of life. And isn't it 
comforting to know that we have such a strong foundation in Jesus that whether it's a season of blessing or a season of difficulty, we can have contentment in Christ because he's, he's the bread of life. But if Paul had to learn contentment, I think we've got to learn contentment as well. And it's not one of those lessons that you master and you never have to go back to, right? It's like something that God's always teaching us and we guard our heart against. Because you could be in a place of contentment for a while and then slip into covetousness. It's always going to be there knocking at the door to say, Lord, I'm not going to give into covetousness. We live in a culture of covetousness. And they say, no, I'm, I'm choosing contentment. Communion is a great way to apply this as we come tonight. Is there something that you've been longing for? Maybe something that you're longing for that God hasn't provided? Let's come to Jesus and bring that to the Lord and allow him to be the bread of life and to him to be able to, to fill up our cup. Because you don't want to be in the place of getting $8 and saying, is that all? <laughs> so would you stand with me and let's pray together. Jesus, you are the bread of life. You're the one who fills our cup, fills our heart, fills our lives. And as we take communion tonight, we don't, we don't want it to just be an exercise that we do on Wednesday night, but intimate and personal time with you. And Jesus, would you protect us from covetousness? Lord, deliver us from that mindset. You're with us, the creator of the universe, the one who can really satisfy, and you'll never leave us or forsake us. In Jesus' name, amen.